Welcome to another episode of Think Business Futures. My name's David Brown. I'm Associate Dean of External Engagement at the UTS Business School. And I'm Nicole Sutton, a lecturer at the Accounting Department in the UTS Business School. This is a show that takes research and cutting-edge thinking and brings that to the real world and unpacks both of them. On this episode of Think Business Futures, we're going to be talking about what's become known as the gig economy. So you've probably seen the bright pink and green logos on delivery drivers zipping around on bicycles. And you thought, wow, now that looks like a fun job. Lots of flexibility there. Maybe not when it's raining. Or maybe you've wondered, how do these people get paid? Is it actually more flexible? Do they get paid some superannuation to look after them as they get a little older? Well, to try and understand this and this whole gig economy idea, today we've got with us, and we're very excited about this, Associate Professor Sarah Kane. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks for having me, David. Fantastic. So Sarah is an Associate Professor at the Centre for Business and Social Innovation at the University of Technology, Sydney. Now, Sarah, have you written several pieces recently about the rights, the pay, the conditions of the people who work in the gig economy, and in particular how these could be compromised because they're not defined as an employee? Could you explain this a little bit for us, specifically why gig workers are not considered employees? Sure. And I think that the thing about gig work and and understanding the the difference in the employment relationship is understanding, I guess, what gig work is to begin with. Mm, So mm. gig work uh, is different from what we would consider a regular job in that it is broken down into singular tasks. And people are engaged to perform a singular task, be it driving from point A to point B or delivering a meal or fixing a particular, you know, a handyman type of job. So that's gig work. That's why it's called gig work. It's it's contrast to a regular ongoing type of employment relationship. And because of that difference, there's developed this ambiguity about how Mm. we determine the conditions and and rights that someone doing this type of work has access to. Um, And the argument basically goes that um, if someone is working in the gig economy in one of these task-based jobs, that they don't have any ongoing relationship with an employer. Mm -hmm. They contract gig to gig. And that's quite different to what we see as a normal employment relationship, we have a contract with our employer, me with UTS. Um, So that's where the definitional ambiguity starts. And what it has ended up being, I guess, is a um, an argument or, or a debate around how do you determine what's a gig job genuinely, yeah. so you're freelancing type work, you, you're, you're contracting, you're genuine independent contracting, and what is what in the Fair Work Act is called sham contracting, okay. which is an attempt by companies to classify someone as a contractor, or in our terms, a gig worker, in order to circumvent the regulation in order to avoid um, the responsibilities as an employer. And so that's where the, the, um, the lack of clarity comes in. Can you provide us with, are there kind of characteristics that kind of distinguish between a contractor and employee, like that we can kind of turn to? Yeah, there's sort of a legal basis for how we determine the employment relationship. And um, for example, before Christmas, um, an Uber driver, appeared before the Fair Work Commission claiming that he had been unfairly dismissed. But, of course, to be unfairly dismissed from a job, you have to actually be employed in you that job. You have to have been employed in yeah, that job. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Minor technicality. Um, um, and so his argument was that Uber was his employer. And uh, the, the commissioner uh, who was hearing the case um, employed what's called the multi-factor test. And the multi-factor test looks at 
not surprisingly, multiple factors <laughs> which uh, determine whether someone is employed or whether they're a contractor. And, and it goes to things like uh, the control that someone has over their job, mm -hmm. uh, whether they provide their own tools, do they have a, a set workplace. Mm -hmm. So there's a list of characteristics. Yep. How much autonomy do they have? Can yep. they further subcontract the work? And it's not the, the, the tricky thing about this is that it's not consistently applied it's case by case so you can't sort of mm. say well if you can tick off these characteristics because there's degrees of control yep. there's degrees of autonomy that, that the commission and the law takes into account yeah so that's why also it's not a clear-cut case of well yep. these are employees and these are contractors so uh, if you're an employee does this mean the organization has a contract with you or over you as an employee but if you're in a gig economy environment, then they contract you to perform a particular task. Well, it's Is interesting. Is too simple? Well... <laughs> it's probably just not quite reflective of what gig economy work is because what tends to happen in, in the gig economy is that you have these digital platforms that provide a service. So take your Ubers or your Deliveroo's. They would argue that they don't provide a service. They provide a platform uh, that they can, like, connect. That connects. They, they connect my, the, the restaurant the with yes. a delivery courier exactly. to a consumer. So they're just connecting these people. Exactly. So it's a kind of triangular relationship mm. as opposed to that direct line you see mm. in, the, in, the, uh, in a direct employment relationship. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the uh, large gig what I, what I think of as gig companies such as your Uber and Deliveroo have been really, really consistent in the way they talk about what they do. Um. So they will say they are technology companies. It doesn't matter how often, you know, you talk about the transport sector or delivery, they will not concede that. Yeah. They will say we, we are technology companies at the base of it. Yeah. And that then, of course, means that the contract is actually between the say rideshare driver and the person delivering that, that they're delivering to somewhere that that's, that's they say the relationship yeah, yeah. they say they have an arm's length yep. relationship and they very very persistent in their efforts at making sure that everyone yeah thinks this yeah okay, so they're completely specifying what they think the market is or constructing a narrative around this which makes it very difficult to argue against them and it's interesting because different platforms do in some ways create different markets. So if you look at Airtasker, yep. that's quite a different model where yep. it is actually in some way creating an online market. Yep. 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 Whereas if you look at something like Uber or Deliveroo, they are responding to a consumer consumer demand yep. or, or a gap in the market, if yep. you like, whereas yep. Airtasker is actually creating that online market. Yep. So it has a different quite a different model, model and, yeah, the, yeah. and the sort of employment issues aren't the same. There are still issues about what the Airtasker model does in terms of putting pressure on minimums, but it's not quite the same. Well, you're not wearing a uniform like when you're doing Airtasker jobs, but if you're a Deliveroo rider, like you're wearing a Deliveroo outfit. So that takes us back to that multi-factor test and the idea yep. of control. Yep. So, so how much control do you have? You're wearing the livery of, a, of an organisation yep. or not. How easily can you refuse the job? Yep. Yep. Take with Uber, if you refuse a certain amount of job, you get blocked from their app. Um, if you get poor ratings, what they consider poor ratings for a period of time, you get uh, decommissioned, yep. Yep. <laughs> which is a That's rather interesting, interesting They've got term. some quite specific measurement. Uh, so someone that I know uh, drives, uh, drives Uber, and he was explaining to me things like his braking they, he gets data and feedback. He, lots of key performance indicators associated really? with the performance yes. of his task. Yes. 
And for me, that starts to look like you're actually working for an organisation yeah. when you've got that level of control. And how Uber would describe that is saying we're assisting the drivers drive more economically so and helping them in their entrepreneurial business. And I guess this is one of the great, great issues that I've had around this idea of employee versus independent contractor is this what I think is a sort of a confected discourse around entrepreneurialism. Can I just zero in here? Why does this matter? But many of the character, characteristics should suggest that there are levels of control. Or as mm. one commission decision said, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it probably is a duck. So this idea that, that they, they're sort of quasi-employees. So it matters because individuals are mm. not receiving what we have as a society through our systems have decided a fair minimums. Yeah, yeah. And, we, so, and that's come from a long history, right? Like, that's come from a long history of struggle, basically. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, to, to make sure that we have, have what we consider fair minimums. Uh, so there's the individual level. But, of course, wherever you have wages and conditions driven down, that has an Im- impact on the market more generally. And so you have a downward pressure on wages, downward pressure on conditions in whatever sector is disrupted mm. by gig work. And it's coming everywhere. It's coming to an industry near you if it's not there already. So that drives wages down. So mm. there's a, um, a competitive pressure put on companies that are paying people you know, a fairer wage. And that's really not a fair situation for those companies to have to mm. deal with either. I guess one of the things I was thinking about um, is independent contractors. Mm-hmm. And for me, this is where it's a little confusing. Yeah. So you look at the building industry, for example, and it largely works off subcontractors. Mm-hmm. And so you've got this capacity, well, so the argument goes, to be independent, have your own business, do your own finance, uh, and so mm-hmm. on. And there are lots of industries that have this sort of model. Now, you've had a look uh, in your research at gig workers, so like driver share and so on that you've been talking about. Do you think the nature of or the advantages associated typically with a subcontracting or contracting time arrangement actually translates into this gig work? No, and I think that's the key, one of the key problems with it. There is legitimate independent contracting. There has been. Mm. We have freelance workers who prefer to work like that, who make a good living working like that, who, who operate in a part of the economy where they can attract wages and conditions that are reasonable and fair. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Nicole and I were discussing this uh, earlier mm. around uh, some friends of mine who do you know, write code, you know, mm-hmm. computer code, of course. really mm. highly skilled. Mm-hmm. They move from gig to gig, yeah. and yeah. for them, this keeps them fresh. Yeah. They they hate staying in an yeah. organisation for too long. Yeah. Be but your own boss. Be, yeah. yeah, exactly. And Make great money. In no, it. but it's really interesting because, of course, you do have, and I always use IT in, in my classes as the example of where there is power in the labour market mm. because you can effectively choose your gig. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's quite different to where you don't have any choice. When you're a when you're a price taker as opposed to a price ma- price maker, yeah. that's quite a difference. Yeah. And that we've seen that historically okay. so in you're other about places. Power, the, the nature of power and the relationship yeah. in yes. the, uh, yeah. the market is a key issue. <laughs> yes, it's, it definitely is a key issue. And the other things to think about too, if you think of um, gig workers who work for these big platforms, big, big service providing platforms, um, they often in, inject their own capital. So, say an Uber driver might. 
mm. borrow to buy a new car that mm. meets the specifications of Uber. Um, so they inject their own capital. When that driver stops driving for Uber, they don't have any goodwill that you would normally associate with a normal business or yep. independent contract. Even a, a subby at a subcontracting yep. firm building would have build up their own goodwill. Yeah, they don't have a reputation to be able to do their ride sharing like or whatever the on the side. The reputational goodwill goes to Uber or to <sighs> Deliveroo. Uh, yep. So that's quite a big difference when you think about this entrepreneurialism and yep. building your own yep. business. Yep. Well, you're not. You're no. building someone else's business yep. and they're accruing the benefits of That's it. That's a key distinction when I start to think about it because, uh, again, I'll go back to the trades uh, arrangement. So you've got highly skilled people and maybe very complex computer or IT mm. environments. We can see very clearly the power relationship, but there's a pretty large and liquid market for trades people. Mm. And so your central argument is that those people have the capacity to go and subcontract for other builders mm. or you know, other people in the trade mm. environment and they can build their own brand, mm-hmm. reputation mm-hmm. and so on. Mm-hmm. And so there's some sort of uh, substitutability in the marketplace. Whereas totally. in this gig economy, yeah. particularly in the sorts of platforms you're talking about, when they're done with that platform, they're done. That's the end of their business. That is the end of their business. If you think of it as well, if you think of, say, a tradie, uh, there are barriers to entry to trades. So yeah. you have to go and you know get your yep. qualifications. You yep. have to keep keep relevant and current. In things like rideshare driving, there's there's very low barriers to entry. Well, you, you have to be able to access a car in Australia. That's not such a not such a barrier. Say for Deliveroo, you need a bicycle or a scooter, and so that means that you can have the market flooded, which of course also puts downward pressure mm. on you know the market and whether you can make a living wage yep. out of it. And yep. in, in and in, in Australia, we've had surge pricing in terms of um, Uber services where at peak times you'll get surges. I was talking to a New York Uber driver, and um, he was saying, well, surges are a thing of the past because Uber wants to get as many many people um, driving for them as possible because That's they get more rides because they get their commission on each ride. But, of course, if you ah. flood the market, <laughs> it's very basic labour market economics. Yep. Yep. Um, yep. but then what you do is you you know, you know reduce the amount that each driver yep. gets for that ride. Yep. So there's no longer surge pricing in those markets, yeah. which you know yeah. also affects the, the, the take-home pay of drivers. Yeah, just while we're on this kind of pricing issue and the reality of gig work, do you have any sense about kind of how how much these these people are actually getting paid? Look, um, some work done uh, very recently has shown that after costs for, say, an Uber driver, that it doesn't meet sort of minimum award wages that you would get. Really? So because of the costs associated, yeah, that they, they, they generally don't have the same. Wow. And if you look at sort of Deliveroo drivers, one of the interesting um, questions or issues is that there seems to be differential pay. So that the riders who started earlier got a better deal and it's been sort of cut over time. Yeah. So that newer riders coming in um, don't get paid. Yeah. And again, Deliveroo is a really interesting one. And and they sort of, um, they also suggest that riders might be able to subcontract their work. I'm not sure how oh, that would no. work. Really? How you would subcontract your, you know, delivery yeah. of... Um, I'd buy a whole host of scooters and bicycles yes, and then I'd get right. other people yeah, to ride them. Right. But again, that just sounds like they're kind of expecting their riders to take on a whole lot of risk yeah. and invest a whole lot of capital and for to promote their business 
not their own. And I think another aspect, a legal aspect that I've had brought to my attention, which I think is fascinating, and I don't think anyone has come to terms with this at all, and I think it's a bit of a um, disaster waiting to happen, is under work health and safety legislation, there are different requirements and different levels of responsibility for everyone involved in basically a supply chain. Hmm. So that theoretically, under the Work Health and Safety Act, theoretically, restaurants could also have some liability along the supply chain in terms of that food delivery because they're meant to, sort of all of the parties are meant to have considered what the risks are and how to mitigate them. Oh, particularly if these platforms are just joining up a restaurant with a delivery driver and the the contract now is actually more between the restaurant and the delivery rider. If something happens to that delivery rider or something to the food to the consumer on the other end. Yeah, so so that, I don't think that's played out yet, but I think it's a really interesting one because the provisions of the work health and safety legislation in terms of who is a worker, is different. You know, we were talking about definitions of worker. Yep, yep. It's different to the Fair Work Act. So it's it's a person conducting um, business. You know, there's a much broader sense of who falls under that legislation. So I think that's a really interesting one to watch. Yeah, okay. You're listening to Think Business Futures. To download this show, head to 2SER.com or your favourite podcasting app and look for Think Business Futures. And please don't forget to leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. This show is a co-production of UTS Business School with the support of 2SER. We wanted to look at a real-world example of the gig economy from a small business owner's perspective. So our producer, Jason, and I went out with a recorder for a coffee and a case study. That's Caitlin Crawford, owner of Petty Cash Cafe in Marrickville. Just a warning here, recording in Marrickville can be tricky with the planes flying overhead. They tend to dictate conversation. I've got no cafe experience. I was just a housewife before I stumbled into this business because my business partner needed another business partner and I went, oh, I, I live down the road. So I was like, oh, I'll give it a go. I can cook. Yeah, and how long ago was that? Nine years. <laughs> okay. So you have to do the marital pause. Like many cafes and restaurants in Sydney, Petty Cash began offering a delivery service through Uber Eats to reach a broader customer base around the city. In February, after nine months of the service, Caitlin decided to terminate her partnership with Uber Eats. So why did you start using um, Uber Eats as a platform with your business? We kind of felt a bit spooked into it um, because, you know, so many places are using it. And my oldest daughter, who used to work here and now lives in Melbourne, was like, Mum, you've got to do it, it's so great, you know. She was living on the Gold Coast at the time and always getting it delivered and stuff. And... She's got lots of friends that own cafes and they all do it. They, you know, they're making like two grand a week out of it. It's really great. So I was like, oh, all right. My business partner wasn't that into it. I asked around. I tried, you know, then I was like, well, should I do Uber Eats? Should I do Foodora, Deliveroo? And I went, I went with Uber. I, I can't remember, remember why, really. Caitlin says she found the initial experience to be stressful and impersonal. She felt obligated to fulfil Uber orders as quickly as possible while also running a thriving existing customer base in the cafe. She says she felt torn. I've got to say it was stressful though because when you're busy and an Uber order comes in, um, you know, it's like, 
what do I do first? Do I look after the people that are here that actually left their house or do the order? So on the weekend, we would often turn it off. And the only time Uber ever contacted me was to say, you have your iPad turned off too much. And I was like, but we're busy. And they're like, just, you can just put a wait thing. You know, you can say it's a 30 minute wait, not a 15 minute wait. And I said, you don't understand. Sometimes I get really, really busy. We've got a tiny little kitchen. I'm going to look after the people that have actually come to my cafe and that there's not a 35% cut being taken off. And here's the source of Caitlin's initial scepticism. That 35% she mentions, Uber Eats charges that percentage for all orders. The justification for this was that Uber managed any discrepancies or complaints so the vendors didn't have to. On top of that, Uber says it provides access to rich data and marketing information. In early 2018, Uber Eats announced that they would no longer handle disputes between restaurants and customers or delivery drivers and customers. So they were bringing in this new model where they weren't going to cover everything. So if a customer was unhappy, they were going to be able to decide whether they were going to pass that cost on to you. Or if the customer was unhappy with how the meal arrived, they would pass the cost on to the driver and you would not have any recourse. So they were going to be judged, jury and executioner. Caitlin and her business partner wondered if the 35% charge was actually worth it. So they went back and looked at the books. Every week I'd have to sit down and go through all the orders. Have I been paid for them all? Why didn't I get paid for this one? Then talk to a robot, you know, or a computer. Yeah, I, I hadn't sort of worked out whether, you know, what's my profit margin really? And then I went, ding, let's look at last year's books. Rang the accountant, email me that. Went, Oh, yeah, that's actually my profit margin. In fact, so that, you know, $1,500 a week I'm getting in the bank from Uber probably cost me $1,800. Caitlin and her business partner decided it wasn't worth it. Not only did the 35% reach into their profit margin, she said they had an issue with what she saw as exploitation, which ran counter to their business ethos. And it's true. You just want to get rid of those uber orders you want them you want them gone and so the people that are there aren't getting as much attention and that's part of the whole cafe culture is you know we, we become friends with a lot of our customers and they come to our staff parties and stuff you know and if, if you're too busy pandering to food delivery guys because you know you feel sorry for them you know they're getting paid below minimum wage one of the things i'd like to unpick a little bit more is this relationship with your customers and from the perspective of like I say you've got a really like unique business that's the whole point this is actually a particular this is only one petty cash cafe and you have uh, relationships with your customers and so on I'm interested to understand your thoughts about how businesses actually manage their relationship with customers if they're actually interacting with the platform rather necessarily with you like, uh, as you said before, this, it opens you up to new markets, but it also creates this middle kind of organisation. Like, they're ordering from Uber. Are they, are they ordering from you? Like, is there a danger here from some sort of marketing or brand perspective? Um, you know, I just think it's really sad that it's going that way. People are staying home and watching Netflix and ordering food from Uber and not going out and meeting people it's really sad like I've got customers that have become friends with other customers it's like cheers you know that show but without the alcohol 
At the beginning of the year, Petty Cash Cafe put a post on their Instagram and Facebook letting customers know they had decided not to offer Uber Eats deliveries any longer. They also started placing notices in each Uber Eats order informing customers that, as of February 1st, they would no longer offer the service. The response, Caitlin says, was mostly positive. Yeah, and we stopped, but when we put that post up, it just went completely really positive. Have you seen um, that positivity spread beyond your existing customer base? I'd be interested to know if that actually uh, you've seen even... What I can tell you is that existing customers said look I haven't been coming as much because of all the Uber drivers hanging around because sometimes you've got like five guys with motorcycle helmets on and their phones out waiting for the Uber orders and um, a few people and one of the guys that interviewed me said oh I, I... I've never been here before, but I'm going to start coming because I make a point of not going to cafes and restaurants that use any of the food platforms because the the focus is taken away from the customer that's bothered to come out. Petty Cash's business model is based on a loyal, community-centric customer base. Caitlin's concerns about Uber's pricing structure, relationship model and employment practices were enough for her to decide it wasn't worth it. After we spoke to Caitlin, she informed us that a small burger chain had contacted to say that they were following suit and dropping Uber Eats. They too put it up on Facebook and were contacted by the ABC for a story. Back in the studio, we asked Sarah about what the gig economy means in the larger context. So Sarah, I was thinking about this whole issue and trying to understand, in a a broader context, have we seen this before? Mm -hmm. And so I guess the question I've got is, you know, more broadly in this market, what happens at a market level when you've got this systematic change around this gig economy and, you know, those sort of broader implications of that? Okay, perhaps if I could, there's several things that I was thinking as you were talking that were sort of triggering me. Um, The first is this idea about flexibility. So this idea in the 90s was that we needed, you know, from the 80s onwards and into the 90s, that we needed to become more flexible. And the way that we would do this is to stop having such rigid employment contracts. Mm. And if we could just respond to the market more, we didn't use the word agility then, but with more agility, um, then businesses would perform better, our productivity would improve, our economy would thrive. So that was the idea. What we saw, you're absolutely right, is the rise of casualisation and contingency in what we call precarious work as well. And so what we, the way we sort of talk about it is that we did indeed see the increase in flexibility. It was one-way flexibility. It was flexibility for companies, for businesses, for organisations, flexibility Mm. for them to decide what they needed, when they needed. There's very little flexibility if you have to pay the rent or pay the mortgage or put your kids through school or whatever it is. You need to work. You need the money. It's not a, you know, there might be a small cohort of the workforce that has the luxury of the sleep in, but most people need that income. And as you say, need a regular income in order to be able to access the types of things that we see as kind of fundamental economic rights, the rights to access finance so we can try and buy a house, all of those things have been the sort of bedrock of, of mm. Australian society. So this shift was very much about flexibility and one-way flexibility. So you've been sort of listening to what you're saying then. It seems that the organisation they or the organisations were pushing their risk onto the employees. So they reduced yeah. their cost structures, yep. 
I'm sorry, I'm such an accountant. So they're getting rid of all their fixed costs, turning them into variable costs, yes. which is really good yeah. for the company. Yeah. Mm. But that means the employee then bears all the risk yes. associated with it. Yeah. But it wasn't the argument that they paid them uh, greater rates. Like, so they earned more per hour and they had more flexibility. So this is better for the employee. Well, yeah, there is, there's, there's always been a rate, an extra rate for casuals. Uh, but if you're on the minimum wage, a 25% extra and not getting sick leave, not getting holiday pay, being able to be terminated you know, on the spot, it doesn't compensate. It doesn't help you get a mortgage in Sydney, and does it? you're no. absolutely right about the risk shift. And if we think about sort of the looking back and seeing what the sort of antecedents are to the gig economy and where we are now, it's very much that the risk shift started. And, and we spoke about it and there's been research on it. Mm. The risk shift started back in the yeah. 80s and 90s when this was idea that we needed to individualise, we needed to make sure that um, everything, you know, we, we were allowing businesses to do what they do best and everything else should get out of the way. So we're kind of um, wearing the, the consequences of that. Yeah. So yeah. we start to think about how that translates more broadly. You touched on this earlier, this why I want to pick up on this. What effect does this start to have on things like consumption? Because... At a fairly simplistic level, I would have thought if you've got large tracts of your workforce Mm. and no longer have any kind of reliable income stream Mm. or capacity to forecast their income stream, Mm. they then start to restrict their consumption accordingly. Yeah. And then that ultimately affects business, doesn't it? Of course it does. And, and, and I guess this is just the most recent or the, the up-and-coming um, manifestation of this phenomenon because we've had, I mean, who would have thought we would have the Reserve Bank governor coming out and saying, you know, workers should get together and collectively bargain because <laughs> wages are so stagnant. I mean, you, you know, know <laughs> pigs might fly. So, I mean, <laughs> yeah. And that's because of exactly this phenomenon that, that workers... Even non-gig workers, and don't forget, the gig economy is still a very, very small proportion yep. of the workforce. Yep. Although we don't have great measures of it either, um, but it's the it's it's the rest of the workforce that are also feeling this insecurity. And so this this the discussion about insecurity that we've seen in in politics hasn't come from nowhere. It's come from the fact that workers, whether gig workers or, or regular workers, don't feel confident enough to spend money. So one of these kind of societal issues kind of looking longer term that you've actually you've spoken about recently is around the concern about what effect this is going to be having on worker superannuation and therefore the superannuation industry mm-hmm. and you know Australia's prosperity as a whole. Yeah. Look, I think the thing is that um we get overtaken by the immediate immediate kind of issues, which, I mean, if you're a worker not getting enough money or you're a gig worker and you don't feel like you're making ends meet, that immediacy is quite important. Um, but I think we, those of us who, who research and policymakers, need to look beyond that and to be to thinking bigger. Mm. Think, what does this mean for us? There might be mm. temporary economic benefits maybe for the organisations, although they tend to not pay tax in Australia anyway. But what happens in the future? What happens mm. when we this, this cohort of workers grows mm. and they don't have the capacity to put away superannuation? Mm. Um, what does that mean? Well, it means for those individuals, and again, it's this individual level and, and macro level that kind yep. of intersect. Clash, yeah. yeah, At an individual level, they're not going to have the superannuation put away. At a macro level, that means that the taxpayers, the rest of the taxpayer yep. workforce... Um, are going to have to foot that bill somehow. And if you think if we have a shrinking amount of people yeah. paying tax, yeah. that starts, and an ageing population, it starts mm, to be a yeah. kind of conflation of, of factors that aren't looking so great. 
So where to next? Like what sort of developments do we see happening to provide better protections for gig workers? So now what we seem to be seeing, which is quite encouraging, I think, is a bit of a groundswell of questions and challenges being posed about these changes mm. to work. And I think that's a really encouraging sign. So we see exposés like about superannuation or mm. about, you know, the, the delivery riders who were sacked because they wanted to take a holiday or, you know, they were, you know, they Goodness. posted something on a forum. We start to see a bit of a groundswell mm. of concern, if you like. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that's quite encouraging. And what that's manifested itself in is, um, say, last week we had Airtasker come out with a personal insurance for its yep. um, workers. And we saw Deliveroo come out, which is interesting, with an app that uh, a superannuation app for its riders. That's interesting. <laughs> it's interesting because they're not providing superannuation like a regular employer, but they said what they, provide they were... a, Have they provided a sharing platform for <laughs> superannuation <laughs> they, for they, their sharing platform? And they've said <laughs> that they will they will deduct from the... Uh, contract contract fee. fee. Yeah, whatever it the is. The revenue stream. Uh, the revenue stream of the uh, rider, and they will put it in that superannuation account for them, and they can then access it. Well, you can't access superannuation anyway, but then they, they can then look at it, I guess, through the app. But, of course, the big problem with that, and, and delivery has been criticised already about this, and I suspect we'll come in for some more, is that that's not providing any tangible benefit to oh, those no. riders. It just makes their poor position all the more transparent. But, <laughs> but I find it absolutely fascinating that delivery felt it had to do yep. something, yep. which means that there's a groundswell, yep. and even, even if it's starting as a PR exercise, yep. it means that there's starting to be social pressure. Yep. Yep. It's not formal regulatory or legal pressure at the moment, but social pressure for mm. these companies to do something. And if mm. you had read the submissions of Uber, Deliveroo, etc., to the um, Senate inquiry into the future of work, it's fascinating in them making overtones of we understand that things have to change, yep. we understand that workers you know, yep. need to be treated in a particular way. Yep. So it'll be really fascinating to watch how that develops. Yep. What I would hope is that this groundswell actually shows regulators and policymakers and, and you know, commission, people in the Fair Work Commission, etc., that now is the time to do something. If yep. these companies are feeling pressure enough to try some kind of quasi-self-regulation, and let's not go there and about how effective that is, but mm. it may mean that now is the time to say, okay, let's take this issue and actually make some proper reforms on it. Yep. Yep. That yep. is very interesting. Yeah. Do you have a sense of what those proper reforms could or should look like? Look, there's been quite a few proposals put forward, largely going back to our legal question, is that how do you deal with the question of employer or or contractor? And so there's a one of the sort of most cited um, contributions is that we should change the definition of, of worker, of employee to worker, mm. so that it mm. captures more yep. people yep. in it. And the suggestion that, that I put forward with a colleague of mine from um, law advising me on this is that 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 broader definition that we do find in the Work Health and Safety Act might be a good place to start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that, you know, you, you can, it's not an impossibility. We've done it before in, yeah, other, yeah. in other law. We've thought about it before. Yeah, so yeah. So we could do it. So so a lot of it is legal. But yeah. I also think the, the other part of it is um, take it, you know, for policymakers and politicians to take the decision that companies can't decide themselves on issues like this. Yeah, they yeah. can't just say... Yeah, you know, we are new and sexy, and we're online, and we're, yep. we're an app, and we're, we're technology. Sort of cool. so. We're disrupting, so that's cool. If we disrupt, that's a cool thing, and mm. we can get away with it. So I think there needs to be a political shift away from this sort of enamoured religious 
kind of pandering, pandering to innovation or entrepreneurship mm. and to strip that away and to really look at what's going on, what is the relationship yeah. that's And what's going the reality on. of employment here? Yes, exactly. Mm. That is so interesting. Well, that brings us to the close of this episode of Think Business Futures. If you'd like to hear more from us, head to the 2SER website, 2SER.com. You could also search for us on your favourite podcast app. This podcast is made by the UTS Business School with the support of 2SER 107.3. Big thank you again for Sarah Kane. You can find Sarah's research at the UTS Business School website. Yep, and we'll provide those links on our website. Thank you.